0: Well, you just know that if ride hailing is in the news in BC today, we are going to be asking you that for our hot question of the day, right? So in case you missed it, today is the day that that report is going to be submitted to the BC government regarding ride-sharing recommendations. And this report was put together by the committee that was appointed by the provincial government to do so. It's made up of four NDP MLAs, four Liberals, and one Green MLA, and they were tasked with looking at Four specific issues. They were told to look at regional boundaries. They were told to look at the issue of how many vehicles should be allowed to operate or if they should put a cap on the number of ride-sharing vehicles out there. They were tasked with looking at the flexibility of pricing and the class of license that should be required if someone wants to be a driver for say Lyft Or Uber. So those were the four main topics. And these uh, MLAs have now submitted that report this morning to Transportation Minister Claire Trevanna. Will this actually put us on the road to seeing some of these things come to the province? I'm not even uh, that hopeful anymore. It's been beaten out of me. You know, like if you, a year ago, two years ago, I would have said, yes, absolutely, it's coming soon. Now, Yeah, I just don't believe it. I don't think we're ever going to see it. I'm that beaten down on this particular issue. I think they have just managed to wait this thing out. Successive governments have managed to put this thing off for so long. I think they've beaten us all down on this thing. So we're asking you. Maybe you're more positive than I am on this. A new report from the committees has has been submitted to the government regarding ride-sharing recommendations. When do you think we will see companies like Lyft and Uber operating in BC? Do you think it will be by the fall of this year, so that would be fall of 2019? Do you think it'll be in 2020? Or are you deeply cynical and think, no, not until 2021, which, you know, conveniently will be right around the time we're getting ready, probably for an election. What do you think? Well, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. You can go online, and if you are on Twitter, then you can vote online, Sarah 980 You can also find it at CKNW. And use our BuzzLine, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. When do you think we are going to get this? Do you think we'll get it in 2019? 2020? Maybe 2021? Now, I'm guessing that people who pick 2021 really are saying, we're so cynical on this, we don't think it's going to happen. And guess what? Right now, with the dozens of votes that are already coming in on this thing, 79% of people are saying not until 2021. So I think we all have been completely and totally beaten down by this thing. That's where we are at at this point. And I was talking to Claire Allen about this earlier, is that you look at other cities, and they're going through like different versions of the whole ride-sharing debate. In fact, in Los Angeles, they're having a debate about whether or not Uber and Lyft drivers are allowed to go on strike because now it turns out there's the proliferation of drivers means that they're not making enough money. So the price fluctuates, right? They surge pricing. If there's fewer drivers on the road and more demand, the price goes up. Lots more drivers on the road while the price goes down. There's so many drivers on the road now uh, that they're not making enough money. They're upset with the conditions. And so now they're talking about going on strike. Well, we'll have to watch that from the sidelines too because we haven't even gotten to the first base when it comes to ride hailing. When do you think we're going to get this in this province if Ever. Well, here we go again. Another report into ride hailing that is going to the provincial government today. We're not completely sure what we're going to hear in there, uh, but we will find out actually during the show today. One thing is certain, we all know we are long overdue for that some form of ride hailing or ride sharing in this province. Are we getting closer to this? You've probably been hearing about this local company called Cater. Apparently, they're going to do a test launch on Saturday, some kind of soft launch. But the ones that people are most familiar with, companies like Lyft and Uber, well, those ones still seem pretty far away from arriving here in this province. So we're going to talk more about this right now with the help of our guest, Ian Tossenson, who's the CEO of Ride Sharing Now for BC. Hi, Ian. Hey, how you doing? I am good, thank you. Now, how are you doing? Are you at all optimistic with this report that's going to be tabled well. today?
1: I mean, we got to just keep you positive here. Right? You, I detect you're losing some of your power <laughs> over this whole thing. It's so little. I don't know. It's, I was saying to my wife this morning. It's been like a year and a half of this all the time. Uh, I am optimistic, and I think about this uh, that we're at today when this uh, the uh, recommendation is going to go to the minister. I think just a couple things. It's really hard to to imagine how the government can reject this. There is so much. Uh, pent-up demand uh, consumers. We hear it all the time. I think, it, you know, coal was 70% of people in B.C. want this. So I don't know how the, 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 the premier conduct that. Um, and I don't know uh, how they conduct sort of common-sense um, um, regulations around, you know, a proper uh, driver's license, no boundaries, and flexibility in the rates. These are things that are not going to hurt the taxi industry. And I really think that... Um, my biggest concern is, like your poll is saying, is timing here, because the applications are saying can start in the fall, assuming that Lyft and Uber in particular are uh, find these changes today attractive. But the passenger transportation board has a history of going slow, and I think if there is hope, I'd like to see Christmas maybe into 2020. I think if we're into 2021, then we've been hoodwinked again. so wow. I, I am optimistic. Uh, I know that these companies have put a lot of thought into this. They've spent a lot of money. They've spent hours um, just talking to the ministers and trying to develop approaches in British Columbia that you know match some of the criteria the government wants. And so I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I just don't know how we could say no to it. I just think there would be a revolt. Um, Cater is a, is a taxi company. It's not going to solve the issues that we need to be solved. And if you look across what the needs of British Columbia are, there's a province, Skater yeah. not that solution. It needs to go to ride sharing. So
0: let me ask you thoughts. this, Ian, as well. Like just looking at what's happening in other parts of the country, in Quebec this week, they're going through uh, quite a bit in Montreal where the taxi industry is causing a lot of protests and a lot of traffic snarls because they're not happy with what the Quebec government does there. Is this just something that right across, I mean, every city it seems like in Canada has gone through this what's been our hold up
1: well it is the taxi industry and in fairness to them they operate in the in these prescribed rules by the you know passenger transportation board and so their hands are tied uh, you know cater's hands are tied we need to sort of find a i think well, what richard was uh, was talking about on on the radio was maybe this move to a class 5 license from a class 4 for your listeners it simply means it's easier to get the a, a designation to drive we call it a Class 5 Plus, where there's added responsibilities. But uh, it's those kinds of things, the tax industry, they haven't been able to operate because they can't go across boundaries. They are told what they have to charge. If you talk to, I'm pretty sure about this, but if you talk to a taxi driver, they welcome a ride-hailing. Do you They think have so? flexibility, they can do it. Yeah, the taxi drivers, the taxi owners, on the other hand, that own the cars, and there's a lot fewer of them, those are the ones that are concerned about the value of the taxi licenses and, and those are the ones that are concerned that they're going to be in a situation of unfair competition. So what I hope happens is that the, the government balances this for the benefit of the tax industry and also for the benefit of, of well, the is
0: This is the thing I couldn't understand either is that if you are a taxi driver, wouldn't this be better because it will level the playing field then? You're not going to have to pay way more for insurance or jump through all these hoops anymore.
1: Oh yeah, totally. In the states, you'll see it. I've never seen uh, in Washington D.C. D. C., the only one time I ever went there it was amazing. And this guy pulled up and he said, "You know," I said, "Taxi," and he goes, "Well, I can be a taxi an Uber or a Lyft." He had all three designations. Wow! And he was quite happy happy to do whatever the customer wanted. I think we'll see that here. I think we'll see a lot of crossover. Uh, taxi drivers that I talk to say they love the flexibility because right now they're assigned to shift. But uh, if they can just sort of sign on to the system and, and, uh, and provide the service, I, I think they'd be happier in general.
0: That's so interesting, though. So then what do you decide? If the, if the driver tells you, I can be Uber, <laughs> Lyft, or taxi, how, how do you uh, decide which one to pick?
1: Well, I think, so if you don't have the app, you probably do a taxi. And if you have a, a Lyft app, you probably do Lyft. And you have Uber, you, have, you do Uber, um, so I think it just sort of depends on the, on the individual. In, in the cases of taxis, you probably see an older demographic taking taxis that don't have the app. So that would probably handle that quite well. And that's actually who, who ends up continuing to take taxi cabs are you know, the older generation that, you know, that aren't sort of wired in as much as we are mobile-wise, and they'll take taxis. And the taxi industries, they go along and they, they, they do survive. They have to change, and they should change, and they should up their game like everybody has to in competition. But there's no, no one ever has said, you know, let's devastate the tax industry in, in, in here. Uh, I think we just need to modernize the tax right. industry and let them compete aggressively with ride sharing.
0: So do your, your opinion then is there is room for everyone?
1: Oh, I think so. I know so. Uh, you know, we still have a deficiency uh, of, you know, uh, a convenient transportation especially in Metro Vancouver. And you know, if I walked out on the side and try to get a cab, it's so a wait. I actually had my car towed two weeks ago and I had to phone a cab. It took 45 minutes uh, in Gastown to get a cab. And, and that was kind of funny too. Cause I didn't know if my car had been stolen or uh, what had happened to it. Cause there's no sign, right? right? It was like, Hey, we took your car, phoned this number. But anyways, um, it's always a problem just because of the, of the finite number of cars in the, in, uh, in the system. Now, the Transportation Board, or pardon me, the Competition Board of Canada, I think you might have been away, uh, Simi, they came out and told the government of British Columbia is to make a competitive system where it's really friendly for the consumer. And that means in terms of availability, in terms of rates, and in terms of um, you know, having uh, the ability to get enough cars onto the road, which is the whole issue around Class 5 driver's licenses. So they, they were really saying, open this thing up and be yeah. friendly to the consumer and let the consumer drive this, not bureaucracy.
0: Okay, so then Ian, let's get a prediction from you. When do you think we are going to see ride hailing in this province?
1: I think we will, I'm going to go out on a limb here, have the ability to order a Lyft or an Uber by Christmas uh, this year. What? Yep.
0: You're saying Christmas so by the if, end of 20, uh, by the end of 2019?
1: Yep, absolutely. And if we don't, and if it comes out that it's slowed down, then we're just going to put more pressure on and we're going to hit that target because, you know, for our industry, the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, we really need this. And we need it for a whole bunch of reasons. We've talked about in the past in terms of safety and our employees and all that kind of things. So we got to move on this. There's no sense after 70 years of studying this to wait any longer. So I'm, that's, that's my optimistic. Wow. For today.
0: That, that yeah. is optimistic Ian. we'll see how that goes. Listen, thanks for your time on this.
1: And, don't lose your spirits Jimmy.
0: <laughs> oh, Ian, it's so hard. It's so hard. But thank you for the uh, buck up on that one. <laughs> that that is you. Ian Tostenson, the CEO of Ride Sharing Now for BC. We've had people calling our buzz line on this 604 331 Buzz. That is 331 2899. And there was one caller, and actually, I should say this caller, he wasn't the only one who figures we will get ride sharing when hell freezes over.
2: Breaking news. Hell just froze over. It's never going to come in. They are going to beat this thing until it's past being dead. Hell
1: will freeze over, then it'll get warmer again, and then it's going to freeze over again. It's just not going to happen. John Horgan and his people don't want it. Neither do the that matter because the tax industry is, is funding them too much. Too many rules and regulations
0: See, now that's what I was thinking too, is that I don't think any political party really truly wants to see this happen because they have it within the ability of our current system as it is set up to make this work without the provincial government. If the BC Liberals got together with the Green Party and said on this one case, it's not a confidence motion, right? So they can make this happen without bringing down the government. We are going to bring this in. The government at that point probably have no choice but to say, all right, we see where this is going. Everybody's going to work together. I guess we should get this done. But they haven't. They haven't done that. Instead, they're all sitting there firing shots at each other, saying, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And in the meantime, we're all still sitting around waiting. And then we get the people who are still positive because they say, I've used this and it works and I like it, like this collar that we had.
3: I don't think ride will ever come to this province, to Vancouver. I was just in L.A. in December, used Uber and Lyft for the first time absolutely loved it. Um, I like the way they have priced their system based on demand. It was easy to use. It was a delight. It's like calling for a personal driver. I've just retired and I can tell you if it came to Vancouver, I would sell my car. I would sell my car, I would take Uber and Lyft everywhere. I am just so angry that we do not have it here. Uh, I, I agree with you, I'm actually quite embarrassed that we don't have it.
0: It is a little bit embarrassing. I find that if I were working in the tourism industry, that would be the worst. And we were talking to Ian Tostenson about that earlier, that if he's the he works in the hospitality industry. That would be terrible to work in that industry and have to explain to people day in and day out, oh, yeah, we don't actually have that here yet. And we don't know when we're ever going to get that. But we do expect to get a bit more of a roadmap from this report today. So let's check in now with Global News online legislative reporter
4: Richard Zussman, who is with us. Hi, Richard. Sammy, I got the report here hot off the presses, and I'm what? just skimming so I'm still trying to gain my breath here as I sprinted down the stairs. Would
0: you I'm like really me to here. say a few things while you just have a <laughs> moment to read through it? Let me just recap while you do that, okay? Yeah. It's, it's Go right. ahead. Go so, ahead, I'm, skim through. What do you see just looking at it there?
4: Um, so I'm just flipping through the record recommendations now and the big part of all this is around driver's licenses so let me read to you what the recommendations from this report are to the minister the committee recommends to the legislative assembly that the provincial government require tns drivers to hold a class 5 driver's license this is big time so this is the thing simi you and i have been talking about a lot yeah the provincial government wants class 4 licenses the committee is now recommending a Class 5 license. Uh, we're going to see how the minister responds. Minister Claire Chavenna is expected to respond uh, very soon here in Victoria. The question is they don't actually have to go with the recommendations of this report. For the listeners who haven't been paying close attention to this story, the difference between Class 4 and Class 5 is all around a different requirement for the driver in terms of going to ICBC and getting a different type of license. Uber and Lyft, who are the major ride-sharing companies in the world, have said it will be very, very hard to operate in British Columbia if the requirement was a Class 4 license. The reason why, a lot of drivers who may drive casually uh, don't want to go and get that additional license. Right. Um, my understanding as well from the report is that what the committee is recommending is that um, cars have to get mechanical checks, drivers have to have background checks. so. Uh, It's basically a class five plus. So you can't just get your license and then all of a sudden to start driving for ride sharing companies. There'll have to be precautions put in place to ensure safety. But that is the major part of this report is the fact that the committee, which is made up of uh, members of the NDP, members of the Liberals and one Green, it seems like the minority in that committee or the majority in the committee, the Liberals and the Greens together have banded together uh, to put forward that recommendation. So, um, you know, I'm still scanning through it. I've just looked at that recommendation, but that's obviously the big one that stands out. Um, and right. uh, as you talk, I will keep reading and we'll get okay. into the, uh, the, zone, the zone issue next because that's a big one too.
0: Okay, so what we're hearing then, that's a big one. That's a very big issue. That was a good, going to be a big obstacle. It looks like that if the government accepts this, that obstacle has been removed. They're recommending just a Class 5 driver's license for drivers of ride hailing, uh, not necessarily a Class 4. Also, we're hearing that there could be no cap being recommended here on any fleet size yep. and no pick up boundaries for the operators. Those are all huge things that they are potentially doing away with here. Uh, No regional boundaries. That's been a a thorn in the side of taxi companies for a long, long time. Uh, And as many drivers on the road or cars on the road as they would like, I guess.
4: Yeah. So the boundaries are huge, right? So as you know, if you're in Surrey and a vehicle, a taxi is licensed to Surrey, it can only pick up in Surrey and not in Vancouver. So if that driver makes a long drive to downtown Vancouver to drop somebody off uh, for dinner, uh, and at the same time somebody wants a lift back to Surrey, they legally aren't able to provide that. If uh, this committee goes forward, or sorry, if the minister goes forward with the committee's recommendations, that will change and there will be uh, the ability, and it really is the only way that ride-sharing companies could exist, uh, is there will not be any regional boundaries associated with it. And the other big factor too is pre- you know, one of the things that makes companies like Uber uh, controversial is the idea of surge pricing. You know, yes. They, on the basis, they charge less, but on nights like Christmas, New Year's Eve... Or like Halloween
0: or something up. like that, yeah.
4: Exactly. A Canucks game, like as soon as the Canucks game gets out, they can surge prices, the prices because of higher demand. So there's a number of recommendations around price. Uh, 1. Ensure that the cost of a trip as an accessible vehicle does not exceed the cost of a trip in a non-accessible vehicle. 2. Set a minimum per trip price that is not less than the cost of public transit. Number 3. Require transportation network companies to disclose the cost of a proposed trip on the app prior to the customer engaging the service. And 4. Monitor data to determine if there's a need for the implementation of a base rate or a cap on surge or primetime pricing and to inform regulatory decisions in regard to service boundaries, vehicle caps, or lack thereof.
0: Richard, that's so interesting because a lot of this that's being recommended in this report that took so long to get done
4: (laughs) is stuff that these companies already do in other jurisdictions. And the crazy thing, too, is this committee already met prior to the legislation and they recommended a lot of the similar things at the same time as well. So the minister doesn't actually have to implement these recommendations, but these recommendations were based on committee hearings, Uh, major stakeholders came to speak on both sides of the issue, those who are opposed to ride-sharing, including taxi companies, and those who are in favor, including ride-sharing companies. Both sides spoke. This committee has made these recommendations. I think it's time for the minister to listen to these recommendations, put them forward, figure out a way to make our ride-sharing network the safest in the world, but ensure that British Columbians actually have access to ride-sharing. You know what? We're not talking about cater, which is a taxi app, which is uh, soon going to be available in Vancouver. We're talking true ride sharing, be it a Canadian company or some of the bigger companies we're familiar right. with. I think it's just time to get on with it. I know it's coming in the fall, but there were lots of concerns that it wouldn't be true ride sharing. If yeah. there were these issues around the license, the minister should just approve these recommendations and we should get on with it.
0: Yeah. What are the minister's options in here, Richard? Is it conceivable that they could say, yeah, we're going to think about this some more. We're just going to table this and think about it some yes. more. Yes.
4: Of course it is. And and I'm expecting to hear something similar to that from the minister. No. Uh, she said that she hasn't actually read the report yet. I'm not sure if I believe that, but she said she hasn't seen it yet. She's going to speak to us. And my guess is she says she's going to say she's still digesting them and we'll get back to it soon. I may be wrong. I may be wrong, Simi, but my guess is that we'll probably have a little bit more of a delay until we ultimately find out the resolution on this license issue.
0: You know, Richard, you're not alone in this because we've been running this for our hot question of the day, and it's quite clear that people have become incredibly cynical about when or if we are ever going to see ride-hailing in this province, where the vast majority of people on our poll
4: are saying that they don't think we're going to see it until 2021. So I don't – I think we'll see some sort of ride-sharing – by the end of this year, I think we'll probably have a few vehicles. We'll have something by 2020. I think, will it be what you've experienced in Seattle, San Francisco, Toronto, other places the listeners may have traveled to? I, I still wonder that. And I hope, I hope British Columbia, you know, we've we've taken our time, we've done our process. We should have the safest system available anywhere. But I do believe that the consumers in BC expect what they've experienced in other jurisdictions.
0: Okay, let's just quickly recap then what we've learned in this report, Richard, that you just very quickly managed to read and translate (laughs) for us. So, there's no uh, no cap on the fleet size, right? No boundaries for operators, right? And no requirement for a class four license. Would that that, sum it all up?
4: That's the big one. Yep, and that's it. And again, the minister needs to make these decisions, uh, but those are the recommendations put forward by the committee, which was made up of uh, NDP. Uh, members who uh, Ravi Kailan had recused himself, so they have the same number of members as the Liberals, and then one green MLA uh, Adam Olson.
0: Okay, we'll let you go get to it. We know we're going to hear more about it. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Bye. That's Richard. He's been doing an outstanding job as always, giving us information on the run. That ride-sharing report just being released, and he was reading it and translating it for us as it was happening. Well, one of our favorite local authors is back with us, and of course, he has written another great thriller. You know him as the author from Vancouver who also still keeps his day job as an emergency room doctor in the city. Daniel Calla is is with us. His latest book is called We All Fall Down. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Uh, it's great to be back. Thanks, me
0: What number is this? Number 10. Number 10, yeah. double digits. That's yeah. a big deal.
2: Yeah, it feels like a big deal.
0: It, it should feel like a big deal. Last time we had you on, you had written a trilogy of books that kind of were deeply historical fiction and quite different from what you had written. This is more back to your thriller roots. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, no. The last one, the sort of Shanghai trilogy, was World War II—a very personal story to me about a group of German Jews who survived in in your in Shanghai at the time. And uh, but I never left my thriller roots. I just thought that was an incredible basis for a story, you know. And it was still you know, largely a suspense novel. And, and now I have a chance to tell a contemporary thriller with a huge historical backstory. So that's that was really fun.
0: What is the historical backstory?
2: Well, the, it's the Black Death, right? So this the whole premise of this novel is that that in Italy, in a monastery that's kind of being corruptly redeveloped, the plague starts to leak out again. And it's not just any plague. It's the actual Black Death, the same strain that wiped out a third of to a half of Europe in three years in the mid-14th century. And so the story goes back and forth between the contemporary heroes trying to figure out where it's coming from and how to stop its spread and a kind of forgotten diary from a doctor who lived in that same monastery and bravely fought the plague 700 years before. And it's sort of his, you know, and eventually the two stories interconnect when the heroes get their hands on the diary and it's kind of one of those lock, you know, hidden secret kind of stories.
0: Where do you get your ideas from? (laughs) Because <laughs> that's really quite something.
2: Well, yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, the idea to write, uh, you know, uh, 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 like I'm, I mentioned to you before, I was obsessed with, for whatever reason, the Black Death. I mean, that sounds, <laughs> that, that I'm sounds not a bit very weird, fun yes. person, apparently, but, um, you know, but I've always, like, as a kid, I always knew about it, but I didn't know about it. I just knew the kind of, myth of the black plague and you know and you'd see all the images and the weird nursery rhymes and everything but i didn't really know the details of what it was about and i always wanted to write about it and then i started to research and it was just fascinating because not only did it wipe out half of europe it, it it reinvented western society i mean we wouldn't have the renaissance without the black death we wouldn't have so many things we have now um and so uh, discovering that it was so rich i thought what great themes to build a thriller around
0: what is your research process like then? Like, do you give yourself a certain amount of time? Do you travel for your research? Is yeah. it online? Like, how do you do that?
2: <laughs> it used to be online. Nowadays, I, uh, I treat myself, to, you know, I spent a couple of weeks in Italy. Oh, that's uh, tough. Researching. That's yeah, tough I fans. know. <laughs> the, things, the things we do for our art, they, the way we suffer. But in Genoa, where the novel is largely set and starts, which is an amazing city, you know, a medieval Renaissance, incredible, incredibly culturally rich city. And so, spend some time there and on, on the ground and then, you know, and then, of course read a lot about it and you know referenced all kinds of online and actual books and such to find out about the black death but yeah um and turned to you know in the contemporary story talks about controlling a very frightening outbreak and so I have friends who are epidemiologists and microbiologists and I always turn to them because to me it's important when I, these are fiction but these stories but to me it's really important to get the medicine right the history right. I want people to know what it would be like if, if an outbreak happened and how scientists and governments would go about trying to stop it.
0: Is that the challenge sometimes with what you're writing? Like trying to make sure that what you're writing is accurate and yet like a a thriller and and interesting to read and all of that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's probably the art form, right? Conveying, you know, conveying interesting, accurate information without boring readers, right? And that's how I grew up. And that's what I love about the kind of writing I undertake, whether it's historical fiction or contemporary fiction, I I like to, to try to teach or at least educate people about a subject that I'm learning about myself, but but give them a character, give them a storyline to several characters and a storyline to care about. That's how I learned most of my history growing up with writers like James Mishner and such. And oh, I you know, love Mishner. I know and what's your great. favorite Mishner book? Oh God. I you know, I don't know, the source, Hawaii oh. I know, I I just
0: can't believe you named my two favorite Mr. Foxes the exact um, same ones.
2: But it's sort of yeah. But it's and that was and this is really fun in this book. I get to to. to Inform a little history and a little yeah. bit of modern day medical science.
0: So then, why do you still work at your regular job? <laughs> Come on, you can't possibly need to still work well, at, as an ER doctor. That must uh, just seem so different from going home and writing.
2: Well, I do need to. I have uh, <laughs> expensive daughters in school, and uh, <laughs> I have. have a, I live in Vancouver, so. But uh, it's great, though. I love that. You know, to me, the there's such energy in both jobs. You know, when when I'm when I'm writing a novel and I'm re- the going back to work, talking to people, meeting real life problems is a nice break from the writing. And of course, you know, That's the true. writing is yeah. the best release for me for a stressful ER shift or a bunch of, you know, commitments at the hospital to go home and just be able to, to get my release and get my revenge in my writing is great. Does
0: the book mainly live in your head when you're writing it? Do you talk about it with people? Do you bounce ideas off of people or is it all there until you get it out?
2: <laughs> Well, I'm not quite the Unabomber, so there's a yes or no. Uh, you know, I, I do talk to people, but it largely it's a very organic process for me writing. My outlines are very brief, you know. And I okay. had the idea for this the story and I had the setting, but I had no idea who the villains were and how, you know, because it's a thriller, there has to be some bad guys. And, and then, you know, how I'd bring church int- intrigue in, which I very much did both. And all these storylines, they just evolve. And to me, that's like the, the most exciting, the funnest part at the end, the stuff I had no idea when I start on page one or even I'm get to page 30, there's this. There's the stories that suddenly exist at the end of it that I never dreamed would be there.
0: So do you write then that way in a linear fashion then? You don't kind of map it out ahead of time or do you just sit down loosely, and write?
2: Just, just loosely mapping it out. And this linearly was difficult because I was writing literally two storylines, yeah. a historic one and and a contemporary one. So some of the stuff got moved around so that, that they aligned, you know. There's some parallels, lots of parallels that, that exist in the contemporary storyline and and the historical example, for example, um, you know when the Black Death first breaks out in this in this story, they don't know where it's coming from. They suspect bioterrorism, and then they suspect Islamic extremism, which leads to this kind of backlash of Islamophobia, and it's it's a red herring, but. Um, in the novel i touch on the fact that really in, in during the time of the plague there was lots of scapegoating and it was the first kind of organized genocides of the jews because they blamed the jews for poisoning the wells and people used them for all kinds of advantage to capitalize on getting rid of you know these jewish communities and so it was a great opportunity for me to say yes obviously we've evolved hugely as a society and medical science has advanced hugely but fear is fear and panic is panic and people still resort to the lowest common denominator when so when the unknown happens yeah. so
0: that is so fascinating. You know, there's so much, so many great books out there right now, and I feel like we're kind of in a golden age of reading. Like the amount of literature, it's just it's phenomenal to yeah. me. Like, do you feel like that too? Like, books yeah. have really had quite a renaissance.
2: Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so. I don't know if they ever went away, but there's great writers out there. But it's a bit overwhelming, you know. You can That's sit down true. with a Netflix series and knock it off, you know, or at least a, well, Netflix is time consuming That's too with so, these so long. True. But it just becomes, you know, sometimes it's paralyzing with so many choices out there.
0: So, do you see this as the beginning of something, perhaps?
2: Or is this... No, this was always meant as a standalone uh, thriller. My next novel... Yeah, already in your
0: head.
2: It's already on paper. It's what? Uh, yeah. Well, it, yeah. So there's a how quite fast a, do you write? Well, there's a leeway process, right? Between there's a leeway time between uh, when a book's first draft is done and when a book comes out. I'm really excited to be with Simon and Schuster now. who have been incredibly supportive publishers of this, and so you know we already were discussing the next book last year. And I've got, I don't want <clears throat> to reveal too much, but it's set in Vancouver this one, and it's ah. about a very, very, very topical medical theme. So.
0: Now, I'm intrigued by yeah. that. We're going to have to have you back for that as well. So, how far in advance do you have another book in your mind?
2: Well, this book <laughs> is done. The this, next this, one.
0: this one's out of your head. So, you've already got one written.
2: Yeah. Okay. And so now, yeah. So, now we're talking about the book after the next one, which is not in my head at all. <laughs> we're just so bouncing you haven't ideas. There there yet. Oh. Haven't got ideas. But, yeah, I mean, sometimes my books have been one year between publications like this, or some, in this case, it's been three years since I've had a yeah. book published. So, it, you know, so sometimes you have some time between.
0: Well, that's good. It sounds like you deserve a little downtime. <laughs> Listen, Daniel, thank you so much for joining
2: us. Well, thanks for having me on. All
0: the time. The book is called We All Fall Down. It is available now and I am putting it on my bedside table today. That is Daniel Callum. Make sure you pick that book up today. You just knew we had to play that music, right? The theme from Jurassic Park is we we're talking about this next story, which I think might just be my favourite of the day, and we haven't even started talking about it yet. The world's largest Tyrannosaurus rex fossil ever found has been found right here in Canada. So let's find out more about it. Scott Persons is with us, paleontologist at the University of Alberta who led the way on this and can tell us all about it. Hi, Scott. Hello. Tell me all about this fossil. Where is it?
5: (laughs) Uh, Well, Scotty the Tyrannosaurus Rex was uh, found just outside of East End, uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, Currently, right now, Scotty's bones are being laser scanned at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum, where they're preparing to uh, put together a brand new exhibit.
0: How big of a deal is this, Scott?
5: Well, it's it's a real big deal for me, and it's been been a heck of a trip uh, working on it. Uh, in terms of, uh, I suppose, in, in terms of just pure bigness, Scotty the Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, we put it around 8,800 kilograms. So he's getting near the 13 meters in length uh, mark. Uh, and that makes it just slightly larger uh, than the next biggest Tyrannosaurus Rex, which, of course, is Sue, the big Tyrannosaur at the uh, Chicago Field Museum.
0: Okay, so what does this tell us then? Like, what does this help us learn about T Rex?
5: Sure. Um, So in in, in particular, there are a bunch of really, really cool things about the Scotty skeleton besides just how uh, enormous it is. Um, Scotty records a number of uh, injuries. It's got an infected jaw. It's got an impacted tooth. It's got broken ribs. It's got some compressed uh, vertebrae in its tail. And all of these are spots where it looks like the Tyrannosaur was injured, but then it rebounded from it. That is, there's evidence of healing around these injuries. So it gives us some insight into the violent life of this particular Tyrannosaurus Rex. But also it's fair to say that one thing that studies size has taught us is um, how wrong a lot of our predictions probably are pertaining to the sizes of other dinosaurs that, that we know of. So most dinosaur species are known from basically a single specimen. Uh, that's quite often the case. In Tyrannosaurus rex, though, now we're pushing up into uh, are around 20 very good skeletons. And you can imagine that if today you were going to go out and randomly sample just one representative um, from, from a species, well, odds are you're not going to happen to sample a particularly large, a particularly old, mature uh, individual. And so just as Scotty uh, is pushing the envelope for the size of Tyrannosaurus rex, that tells us that for a lot of other dinosaurs up there, the envelope is probably going to wind up being pushed to the same extent uh, once we
0: increase that sample size. Okay, and Scotty is a senior T. rex too, right? That's right. That's
5: right. Yeah. 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 So you can uh, you can estimate the age of a dinosaur if you do what's called bone histology, meaning you actually take a little section uh, out of the skeleton, uh, usually from a limb bone. You grind that down so that it's super thin, uh, so thin that you can actually shine light through it, and then you examine it under a microscope. And if you do that. You get all this inside information as to the growth pattern. And in mean, some cases, just like if you do a cross-section of a tree trunk, you can count the yearly rings of growth. Right. You can do the same thing for growth lines in, in some dinosaurs. And If you do that for dinosaurs of the same species in different sizes, you can fill in, you know, how many years did it take them to reach a particular size, Well, in Scotty, when you do the section, everything you see is is old growth. This is a dinosaur that had definitely reached the point of obtaining a maximum size and was no longer secreting down new bone at at the same sort of rapid growth rate that you would see when it was younger. So we estimate that Scotty is probably just into its early 30s, which does make it uh, the oldest known T. rex. And so obviously, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex uh, was not a dinosaur that lived all that long, right. you compare that to say a modern elephant, a really big modern mammal, right? Uh, they can live to be sixty, and really old individuals get up into the eighties. Tyrannosaurs, probably because they had uh, such a violent life, you can imagine it's hard hard to make a living uh, by preying on the likes of Triceratops and armored uh, Ankylosaurs. Uh, they just uh, they just didn't last that long.
0: This is amazing. And so this was found in Saskatchewan. How do we find Uh these, Scott? Like, how do you take a guess as to where a Tyrannosaurus rex fossil might be?
5: Sure, sure. So when you want to go out and find a a new dinosaur, you don't just go out and dig at random. The first thing you do is you consult a geologic map, a map that tells you where the right age rocks. In this case, if you want a Tyrannosaur, you want rocks from the very end of the Cretaceous period, we're talking about around 66 million years ago, where those rocks are exposed on the surface. And even then, you don't just go out with your field crew and take a shovel, and pickaxe, and start digging down. Instead, you stand out across the Badlands, and basically you walk, you walk hunched over, eyes close to the ground, looking for pieces of bone that are sitting out on the surface. Ideally, what you want to find is not a skeleton that's all out there on the surface already, because if that's the case, it's going to have been exposed to the wind and the rain. It's going to have eroded away. It's going to be basically a cruddy mess, but instead to find a spot where just a little tip of the skeleton is poking up above the sediment. And then you can start to dig down and hope that there's more to it, uh, pristinely preserved uh, underneath. And that is basically what happened in the case of Scotty. It was found in uh, the equivalent of a prehistoric point bar, yeah. So the skeleton was in a, a river uh, uh, environment. It had sunk down into that sand, and that was where it was uh, was preserved.
0: Oh, man, this is such a fascinating story. Listen, Scott, thank you so much for telling it what to us pleasure. today. That was so great. You'll have to come back on the show with us. Uh, I'd love to. Appreciate that. That's Scott Persons, paleontologist at the University of Alberta and one of the lead finders of Scotty. Not only the world's largest Tyrannosaurus rex ever found, but also... The oldest, they believe Scotty was in his early 30s, which they said for a Tyrannosaurus Rex, that's pretty old. So it's like a senior uh, T-Rex that they found in Saskatchewan, currently being cleaned up at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. Australia does it, so does the United Kingdom, so does New Zealand. In those countries, they teach drivers something called hazard perception training. In fact, in the UK, that training has been credited with an 11% decrease in new driver crash rates. Well, now that training could be coming here to BC. And given the complaints about the way we drive, it sounds like not a moment too soon. ICBC is looking into using that kind of technology for testing drivers here. So what would that involve? What does all this mean? Well, we thought let's ask the expert on this. And by that, we mean Steve Wallace, who's the CEO of Wallace Driving School. Hi, Steve. Hi, Sammy. How are you? I am good, thank you. So what did you think about this idea of hazard perception training?
6: Um, Well, BC's probably making the best decision they made for quite some time as far as driver education is concerned, but they're a little late to the party. There are programs such as Teen Smart for the teens, of course, and the Lifelong Driver, which provide neurocognitive training for those two groups. And it's shown in 49 jurisdictions. They've got 49 states in the U.S. that are using it right now. Um, And I think the only state that's not doing it is either it's Alaska or Hawaii. And I forgot in the last convention they they said which state wasn't, but I I forgot which one it is. But um, what that does is it provides a program that reduces the crash rate up to 30% and the bodily injury rate up to 50% if used properly. And it's a hazard perception program. And I know because I was at a meeting with David Eby, the minister responsible for this, and with the owners of Adept Driver out of California. So I know they're talking. We put the two parties together and said, hey, we're using this at Wallace Driving School. We've been using it for a number of years. It works like a charm. You you two should talk. Okay, so So what does that involve, though? Yeah,
0: what does that involve?
6: Well, it's a program where you can actually go to your computer and you can go onto a site And you can actually go through streetscape situations, picking out hazards and making sure you make actions to avoid them. Plus, we transport that into the driving school car and go through a hazard perception lesson and a hazard avoidance lesson. So when people think, oh, what are driving schools doing? Well, I hate to tell you, you know, the vast majority of them are just doing parallel parking and prepping people for the test, but there's 50 odd driving schools that do the graduated licensing course. We're qualified to do that out of the 700 driving schools in BC. We're teaching this stuff along with how to pass your road test.
0: Interesting. So didn't we used to do this, though, as part of our driver education?
6: Um, not really. The graduate licensing program puts everyone into this learning phase where you do the L for a year at minimum and then the N for two years. The problem that ICBC's had is they're the delivery agent for this particular item uh, as far as driver testing is concerned. But they've never been able to get the highway segment in in every case. So what they've been doing is The person goes for the road test after they've been practicing for a year, and they don't go over 50Ks in about 90% of jurisdictions because you can't really get to the highway in North Van or in Surrey or other places and do this test in a reasonable time. So what they've been doing, they've been saying, okay, let's go for the test. We're not going to go over 50Ks. But then in two years, why don't you come back and to get rid of the N, the first test gets rid of the L, the second test gets rid of the N, two years later, oh, now we're going to take you on the highway. Well, what happens in the middle of those two years?
0: Yeah. You've obviously been on the highway during that time.
6: Yeah, and uh, without any training and without knowing that when you triple your speed, it takes you nine times as far to stop, not three, and those kinds of things. uh, Where the only defensive driving you have is slam your brakes on and hope, as opposed to go to the opening or the space that's available. So this whole process is um, well-established in the U.S., and we know in Britain, I know they're doing it in Australia, we had a fellow... I I may have mentioned this to you before. At the last convention I was at in Baltimore, I had to give a talk to the driving schools in the U.S. and Canada. And the fellow who preceded me and was giving a talk to them was from Red Driving School, R-E-D. You can look it up on the Internet. He runs 1,500 cars in Britain. Whoa. And I said, hey, to the president, I said, you sit him with me at lunch. That's (laughs) the guy I want to talk to. (laughs) So, I mean, we have got people... Who, uh, uh, you know, run a number of cars. In fact, a fellow from Michigan's visiting me tomorrow. He runs 68 cars and he's the former president of the Driving School Association of the Americas. And I've got another lady coming up from Texas and she does our programming section plus she owns her own driving school. So she's very good at adapting what should be, what should be serving driving schools because she owns one as far right. as programming is concerned. But, you know, getting back to this hazard perception, um, we know that Forty-nine states give insurance discounts if you can prove that you've had this training, and it works like a charm. We found a marked difference of people who do our classroom sessions and then go through this training program at home on their own computer. And I can tell right now, after being in this business for a while, if I'm in the car with somebody who's done this training, I can pick them out in 10 seconds.
0: Are we particularly bad at this, do you think, Steve? Like when it comes to, oh, look at half a block up ahead, there's a child on the sidewalk, not sure if they're going to run out. Like, are we bad at this kind of stuff?
6: We're just late to the party. And to be blunt, I've been blunt on your show before, I mean the majority of the driving schools that you've got in Surrey and Richmond and Delta and some of the other places I shouldn't say Delta but you know, some of the other places in Vancouver, they're no more than car rental facilities for the road test. I mean if you if you're gonna go to someone with magnetic signs on their car, you're gonna get what you pay for, thirty dollars cash under the table. Uh you what you wanna do is you wanna go to a driving school that teaches the graduated licensing course. Those are the people that are head and shoulders above anyone else in the marketplace. And if you do that you're going to be in pretty good shape.
0: Right. I think what we get a lot now, having had two children just go through this process, uh, is you get taught the test. Yeah, Yeah. You get taught how to pass a test, and that's pretty much it.
6: Yeah, this this is how you pass it. You, you want to parallel park, at which no one's been killed that I know of in lately, uh, and then park on the hill. And, and yet, not enough things. people
0: know how to parallel park. Steve, have you ever seen people try to do it out there on the street? <laughs> well,
6: you know what? <laughs> the fact is that most people have given up and they do drive-through spots at the mall now. So, I mean, they That's determine true, where they're going to shop because they, you know, they can't parallel park. But the, the key for us is. If you are in a driving course and it's the graduated licensing course, you're going to be in a mandatory fashion. You're going to have to do the highway drive. You're going to have to do the evasive actions. You're going to have to do the confined spaces. So, And you're going to have to go to the dangerous intersections that are identified in your locale. So once you can get people who are very adept at making the left turn in front of oncoming traffic with the necessary gaps, 90% 90% of the crashes, you know, are highway, high speed, yeah. and intersections. So if you concentrate your program on intersections and highway, high speed, you get 90% of the, of the process licked, and the rest of it is just testable items that you may have to go through in order to qualify to get rid right. of the L or to get rid of the N.
0: So, Steve, do you think any kind of hazard perception training that we do in this province, that's a good thing?
6: If they can include hazard perception training within the envelope that they already offer, They're going to be doing a good job. The problem I have with ICBC is that they consistently want to reinvent the wheel, and that takes time. This stuff that is on the marketplace now in the other countries you mentioned, it's shelf-ready. Grab it. Why reinvent the wheel? Just grab it and use it, and we'll all be better off for it.
0: All right, Steve. Listen, thank you for your time on this.
6: Anytime, Simi.
0: Appreciate that. That's Steve Wallace, the CEO of Wallace Driving School, we were getting his reaction to the news that it looks like ICBC is seriously considering the kind of technology that would allow for hazard perception training for drivers out there, something that I think is sorely lacking. Let's talk about breast implants. Now, they've been around in one form or another since the early 1960s, but it wasn't really until the 1980s that you saw them become more more popular. Then came those concerns over silicone gel implants, and they ended up being banned. They were replaced by saline implants. But we are still learning and grappling with the long-term health effects of having breast implants. It's something that our next guest has been writing about, how more and more women say their breast implant surgery is causing them all sorts of health problems. Julie Chadwick has written about it in the latest issue of Walrus Magazine and joins us now. Julie, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. What got you started on this topic?
3: Uh, So it was actually quite a long time ago. I was working at the university newspaper. So this would have been like 2005 or so, late 2005. And I guess it initially started just as kind of like a morbid fascination with plastic surgery. And then like just kind of looking at blogs and forums on it and that kind of thing just out of curiosity. Right. And then I kind of started noticing that like especially when I was looking at things about botched plastic surgery, there was a lot of women talking about their breast implants. It seemed to be the most problematic thing. So what started as kind of just an interest became like, oh, I started like sort of my news sense kind of kicked and I started noticing a pattern and wondering if there was more of a story to that. Like wow, there's a lot of women talking about their issues. And so I did a long feature for the university paper then, uh, and it came out just before two thousand and six, which is when the it was a voluntary moratorium in Canada and the u s on silicone. So the companies voluntarily withdrew their products on the market uh, in nineteen ninety two. And this is um, coming after a whole lot of like massive class action yeah. lawsuits against companies like Down Corning. And so in 2006, the moratorium was lifted in silicone and silicone came back onto the market. It had always been available for women um, in terms of reconstruction patients, things like that. So right as the article came out, that also happened. And so that kind of kept my interest. I would also say that I think the thing that probably informed me the most was finding Dr. Pierre Blay, who is uh, an expert who was featured in the article, and he really informed me a lot. Um, he's an expert who analyzes faulty medical devices.
0: Yeah,
3: And so we've heard a lot about generally implanted devices being problematic. There's a massive um, international investigation of implanted devices that just came out of the ICIJ and breast implants was one of the most prominent pieces of that investigation. And so this is something he's been um, analyzing for decades. So when I interviewed him, that really, um, a lot of what he said kind of was quite shocking for me, and I had no idea. So, yeah, so over the years, I've just kept an interest up in it.
0: Like, what did he say that was so shocking to you?
3: Well, so what happened was I ended up getting into reporting and I kept an interest in the topic and then I recontacted him again because a part of the condition of lifting the moratorium was that the companies had to keep a 10-year sort of record of data. They had to do like long-term studies. And so as we were coming up on the 10-year mark, I recontacted him and said, hey, like is there anything... Knew that's going on with this story, or like any new conclusions that you've come to with this? And he was saying that he felt, based on his own research, that the breast implants were implicated in women's deaths, according to cases that he had seen when he had been sent, for example, implants post mortem to analyze them. Um, so he's an wow. independent contractor. So yeah, he was often sent implants from women who had died, and he was trying to trace back exactly what had happened and whether the implants were related.
0: Right, so because there's a petition right going on right now because these are being investigated in the U.S. as you mentioned. There, are we not doing enough to investigate these in
3: Canada? Um, so, are you speaking of the FDA? Yeah, um, yeah. So, there's people giving testimony to the FDA right now. I believe there's four Canadian women who are involved in that, and a Canadian researcher who I also interviewed for my article. Jan yeah, Turvert, I believe his name is. Um, yeah, so Canada, like since the international investigation has come out, Health Canada has been taking some action on reviewing breast implants and um, seem to be kind of doing a bit of catch-up. Um, it's it's a tricky issue. Like there's kind of a lot of voices on many different sides um, that are arguing different points. So you have kind of a large body of women who are asserting that, I mean, one of the Facebook pages for women that have had problems is like, every time I look at it, there's another 10,000 people that have joined it. So I think it's like 70,000 and counting now. So there's a large body of women who are absolutely insisting that they, their problems are related to implants. And when they get them out, they feel so much better afterwards. Um, And then there's also a lot of experts that are saying, well, you know, we have these studies out. There's no studies definitively showing that they're causing, for example, autoimmune illnesses. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of differing um, opinions and different kinds of studies. Like, Jan Turvert, who's um, giving testimony to the FDA right now, has been studying breast implant right. illness. He's the uh, the head of director of rheumatology at the University of Alberta. He has been researching it himself, and he's asserting that breast implant illness is real and he's been treating women and so yeah you've got a lot of different experts saying different things essentially what
0: what exactly is like breast implant illness like what kind of health effects are we talking about here that women have come forward with
3: uh rashes brain fog um i mean these are in addition to any kind of localized issues like for example capsular contracture when the, the scar tissue around the implant uh hardens and causes discomfort that's seen in a lot of cases. I mean, the FDA themselves estimate that 40 to 70% will experience some kind of complications of those varieties. But what I'm talking about is more like things like hair loss. Um, One woman that I spoke to just said she got them when she was quite young to correct like sort of a genetic deformity where she had one breast that was much smaller than the other. And she just said she felt like there was glass in her feet. Um, A lot of these are kind of like immune immune system type responses. Um, She got so foggy in her brain that she couldn't really like go to the store and count out money. And she actually became quite suicidal at one point because she said she was just non-functional, like hot and cold flushes. Um, yeah. Like uh, the rashes. I'm just trying to think That's of, awful. Like That's muscle awful. pains, um, inability to like sort of grip very well with her hands. Also like trouble swallowing. Um, one woman I saw to who had leaking Dow Corning implants said that um, when she got them taken out, they the silicone had migrated is so close to her lung that they basically could only scrape it to her the surface of her lung and then they couldn't get any more because it had gone so far. So a lot of I've heard a lot of long lung and breathing problems. Because it's so close to your, your it's in your chest cavity, so it's so close to your lungs at times.
0: That is just terrible. Like you must have heard so many stories like that from women.
3: Yeah. And the other thing that was really interesting is every woman I spoke to just had the same strangely like echoed the same story of just not being listened to so a lot of them uh would just say you know the doctor would respond by saying insinuating that they had psychiatric problems or straight out saying you should see a psychiatrist there's nothing wrong with you there's no breast implants are perfectly safe there's you know and most of them that i talked to were actually told that they would last a lifetime which is not true
0: and how much testing has been done on this kind of stuff right because like when you the way you described it to me too is it's not like these products have been on the market for extended periods of time so we even know what the long term effects are
3: yeah i mean one thing i found really interesting in researching the article was that around the time that the moratorium was being discussed and it was discussed being discussed whether these implants should be allowed back on the market um there was a whistleblower that came out from I believe it was Mentor, and they were they were a researcher, and they were saying that there was certain aspects of the research that was inadequate, or the results yeah. were being presented inadequately. And one of the problems was that um, they were saying that low uh, low molecular weight chemicals, that the the seepage that comes out of the envelope around the silicone, that there is seepage of these low molecular weight chemicals. That was not being adequately addressed. And this is something that um, Pierre Blay has also talked about, whereas you have um, items that are tested within a lab testing, but there often isn't adequate testing inside of a biological system. Yeah. And that was his area of expertise is how do these devices um, react within a biological system, within a body, because it's different. It's different once it actually goes into someone's body, when it sits in your chest cavity. Yeah. That's kind of the crossroads of a whole lot of different systems that are going on. Your heart is there, your lungs, major blood vessels. So in that case, um, it's not just about the safety of the individual devices, let's say leakage problems. It's also about how does your body react to a large foreign object being implanted into that area. That's a whole other area as well. I mean, even if they were perfectly safe and made out of completely inert materials, there still is the issue of how your body reacts to that. And that is something worth looking at.
0: It is. This is a fascinating article. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That is Julie Chadwick. She's a freelance journalist and author. Her article on this topic can be found in the latest issue of the Walrus Magazine. and And it's about, and it's called The Trouble with Breast Implants.